What is the driving purpose of your life? We need to squelch the pat answers and shelve the religious jargon and ask what is truly the fundamental orientation of our lives. What drives you to do every day what you do in this world? We've all shared one answer to that question. All of us were born with a fundamental orientation towards self. By force of nature, the dominant perspective that steers our lives is self-interest. That was not God's original design for humanity. We were created with large souls. We were designed by our loving Creator to find our orientation in Him and to find our orientation in others. We were created to look outward and to be driven by the welfare of others and by the glory of God. But what happened? When our parents, Adam and Eve, rebelled against God, they were like, it was as if iron prison doors slammed shut in their souls. Incarcerated in the dark, cramped confines of that dungeon, their hearts shriveled and they grew cold. Their focus turned in a new way inward. There was self-consciousness before the fall, but now they were inner-focused, self-focused, driven by self-orientation. They became proud and defensive and selfishly ambitious. As the, great, as the race grew, they experienced bitter envy and rivalry and gossip and hatred. Soon, people were tasting the gall of materialistic greed of lust and laziness and sensual desires for ease and safety and security at all cost. Driven by self-interest, humanity experienced stiff-necked resistance to authority. And inheriting their nature, this self-centered orientation is now our natural bent. And you've been dealing with it this week, haven't you? We know it's a struggle to be self-oriented. The autopilot purpose that drives us is self. The good news is, and how we rejoice together as we've gathered here today, the good news is that Jesus came to liberate people from the dungeon of self-orientation. As he traveled about Palestine preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God, Jesus, I believe, repeatedly called his followers to orient their lives not towards self, but to the love of God and to the love of others. As we put the gospel accounts together, there is indication that this is a message Jesus repeatedly delivered. It comes to Jesus in the words of others to him. It comes from the mouth of Jesus. But this teaching, as would have been the case with a teacher in that time, he didn't write a book, of course, but he went from village to village and from town to town, and he repeated the same messages, I believe, over and over again, that people would get the message, and the message traveled, and the message was from time to time and place to place, we must love the Lord our God with all of our heart and our neighbor as ourselves. All of the law, said Jesus, hangs on these two commands. Now I believe that it's very possible that the lawyer that we meet here in Luke chapter 10 heard Jesus give that teaching. We'll talk about that in a moment. But as a lawyer, this man was a biblical scholar. 
a specialist in understanding the meaning of the first five books of the Bible in particular, referred to as the Mosaic Law or the Pentateuch, but those first five books where the law was contained, this man knew those books by heart, and he knew their application with amazing skill. He had studied the Scriptures. From there, he knew the rest of the Old Testament Scriptures as well, but this man was a lawyer. That means that he was schooled in the law of Moses and how it was to apply to daily life in Israel. Remember that as we meet this man. He comes to hear Jesus preach, and he has the opportunity to ask Jesus. He means to ask him one question, but he ends up actually asking him two questions. And we look at that, and we hear through his questions what Jesus has to say to us today. Verse 25, on one occasion an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Now let's note there just for a moment before we proceed the motivation to this question. Notice here that it is to test him. Now there's another man that Jesus speaks this very same idea to later that has a better motive, but this man's motive is evil. It is to test Jesus. He's less interested in learning truth and he's more interested in putting Jesus on the spot. His question is what, verse 25? Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? This was a fairly common question to kick around in that day. How does one gain eternal life? And I think in the context of the Old Testament, he's probably drawing from Daniel chapter 12 and verse 2, which says, Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake. Some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. That's the theology this man has to base the question on. He's not thinking, do I embrace you, Jesus Christ, as my Savior, crucified and risen? We're before the time of Christ's death, of course. But he is asking, how can I inherit eternal life? How can I identify with those who will rise to, in righteousness in the last day? How can I be sure to join them? Jesus answers the question in verse 26 with a question. What is written in the law, Christ replies, how do you read it? It's quite a return, and I think a very wise return on Jesus' part. This man it does what for a living? He studies the law of God for a living. Believe me, he has an opinion about this question. And Jesus knows that, and so he asks him, well, you read the book of Moses, it's the word of God, you study it for a living, what do you think? It's a masterful stroke of wisdom. If the lawyer does not answer the question, it will be obvious that he is either not a very good lawyer or he really had an agenda here with Jesus, which is in fact the case. By forcing the lawyer to answer, Jesus has sprung the trap set for himself and he has set a trap, so to speak, for this man. Everything's in place. Verse 27, he answered, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind. Deuteronomy 6.5 And he couples together with that love your neighbor as yourself. Archaeology to this day has not uncovered any text of, from a Jewish rabbi that ever put these two passages together as a summation of the law. 
There were those that spoke of loving your neighbor as a summation of the law, those that spoke of loving God with all your heart as a summation of the law. In fact, every good Jew repeated that statement, we must love the Lord our God with all of our heart every day, twice a day in fact, and perhaps many other times. These are not new concepts, but bringing these two concepts together, to this point in time we have no evidence that any rabbi ever did that. Now, I will admit that it might be found someday, but pretty doubtful. I think what is very possible, and this is just conjecture, but I think it's very possible that this lawyer knew what Jesus was going to say because he had heard the teaching before, and he knew that Jesus was right. And so he identifies with Jesus on this point, as will be the case, evidenced here in verse 28, for Jesus agrees with him. You will love the Lord your God with all of your heart, Deuteronomy 6, 5, and your neighbor as yourself, Leviticus 19, 18. That's the summation of the law. That is how we inherit eternal life, he says, according to the law. Jesus agrees with the answer in verse 28. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. What was his question? What must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, do this and you will live. The point is not academic accuracy. The point is obedient action. Do it. Is Jesus teaching this man then that he can earn eternal life by his righteousness? If Jesus says do this, does he not mean that the man can do it? Now let's think about that for a few moments because it's a crucial question. Truth, number one. This man is a self-oriented sinner who does not see his desperate need for God. That's who we're talking to. That's who Jesus is talking to here. We need to think of that. He is not coming to Jesus with a legitimate question, how do I inherit eternal life? He is coming to test Jesus, to put him in a spot. Jesus knows that about him, and so we need to remember that that's who this man is when we consider the answer that Jesus gives to him. Truth number two, on other occasions, people came to Jesus and said, what must we do to inherit eternal life? And what did Jesus say? Believe. John chapter 6. So when Jesus is not giving the full answer here. He's not giving the only answer that he ever gave. By saying that this man must do these things, Jesus is not saying that he can do them. To love the Lord with all of your heart and your neighbor as yourself is what you must do to inherit eternal life. But that does not mean that the man will. I think what Jesus is seeking here is a response such as we find in Romans chapter 7. And I invite you to turn there by way of cross-reference to Romans chapter 7 and verse 7. What is the purpose of the law? Remember, this man is summarizing the law. What is the purpose of the law? What does it bring an individual to consider? Romans chapter 7 and verse 7. This is much time later, I realize, but I think this is the, what Jesus is driving at in essence. Paul writes, having given himself to the obedience of the law, he says, what shall we say then, Romans 7, 7? 
Is the law sin? Certainly not. Indeed, I would not have known what sin was except through the law. For I, have not, for I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, do not covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of covetous desire. For apart from law, sin is dead. Once I was alive apart from law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. Did you hear that? I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. Do this and you will live. Verse 11, for sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me and through the commandment put me to death. Verse 24, what a wretched man I am. O wretched man that I am, who will rescue me from this body of death? I think we can illustrate this idea as we go back to Luke chapter 10 might help us here, and I think it's necessary for us to consider this as we seek to win others to Christ and as we consider the place of the law of God in that process. Think of a young boy and his father, their wilderness camping, and through a terrible circumstance, they become trapped in a forest fire. There's no way out, save one, and that is across a great ravine. It's not very wide, but it's further than they can jump. And it looks like there is no way but to either be eaten by the fire or to jump off into this ravine and to die that way. It's a horrible situation. The father assesses the situation, as does his son, and his son says, what can be done here to get out of this? And the father says, well, what do you think? The boy realizes that his dad has a chainsaw with him and begins to put things together and says, you know what, if we cut that tree off right there and it falls across the gap, we can walk across on that tree and we can get to the other side to safety. And his father says to him, brilliant idea, absolutely right. Do that and you will live. And the boy starts to think, I'm not strong enough to pull the chain on the chainsaw. I don't know how to notch a tree so that it falls the right way. I'll probably get the saw bound up like I've seen Dad get it bound up before. I, in fact, I can't even lift the chainsaw and hold it sideways to begin to cut the tree. And if the tree fell over, I would have no courage to walk across on that tree to the other side. It's the right answer, but he does not have the power to do it. What he needs is for his father to fell the tree and to take him on his back and to walk him across to safety on the other side. Having the right answer is important. Having the right answer does not mean that we can apply it in our life. And I think that is what is happening here with this man. Jesus says, how do you read the law? What is the way out of here? How do we exit the damnation that is pursuing us? How do we find salvation? You love God with all your heart and your neighbor as yourself. What Jesus wants the man to see is that he needs God to do what he cannot do in himself. This is the summation of the law. 
well, it gets really nervous right about here. Because this man wants to cut his own tree and wants to get his own chainsaw going. He wants to be justified in himself. And so, verse 29, he comes up with a second question. He wanted to what? He wanted to justify himself. He does not want to fall on his face before Christ and say, I've tried. I've tried to love God with all my heart. I've tried to love my neighbor as myself, but I'm self-oriented. And I fear that that damns me. What do I do? That's not his response. Rather, he wants to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, verse 29, and who is my neighbor? This is a very typical response from a Jewish rabbi. Uh, This happened all the time. Rather than think about our failure to honor God's law, let's veer off the path into an intellectual debate over definitions was a common ploy, and it is a common ploy for self-oriented, self-justifying people. When someone flips on the searchlight of conviction, let's change the subject and start talking a little theory for a while, shall we? What he hopes will happen is that the definition of neighbor will be sufficiently reduced to allow his self-oriented way of life to survive the coming destruction. Jesus knows this. He also knows that getting drawn into a debate over proper definition of a neighbor will accomplish nothing for this man who is depending on his own merits to earn his salvation. The man is in serious spiritual trouble. And so, in yet another masterful stroke of wisdom, Jesus begins to tell a story that will not only answer the man's question, but it will go beyond to the very issue that the man is seeking to avoid. Jesus answers with a parable in verse 30. In reply, he said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes and beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, took him to an inn, and to take and took care of him. The next day he took out two silver coins, two denarii, and he gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Let me just very briefly go through the parable that we might understand it. By the way, this is a classic story. You've heard, you heard the tragedy here just recently, I'm sure, of the young man who stopped on the side of the road to help someone change the tire and was hit by a car and died, I think, maybe a, a day or two later. What did the media call him? A good Samaritan, didn't they? You want to know a definition of a classic story? Here it is. Less than 150 words. And two millennia later, on the other side of the world, in the daily newspaper, we read about this good Samaritan. There was no Jew ever on earth, I would guarantee, that ever referred to the good Samaritans until after Jesus showed up. This is his story. It is a classic parable, and it stands to this day like bedrock 
against self-orientation. This good Samaritan. Let me just show you here, completely out of scale and the like, but a little cross-section of Palestine. Uh, We'll show this map for a couple of reasons, but it is obviously not the scale, but Jerusalem is here and just a couple miles from Bethany. That will come in later. But from Jerusalem down to Jericho is a journey of about 17 miles, as you see here. And this journey, it, okay, I'll admit it doesn't drop quite that fast, but the paper's only so wide, so it's a little tough to picture. But it is a steep drop. This, from this point to the uh, Jordan River, which is uh, down here and at the end below sea level, as it drops down here, that's a 3,000-foot drop, and it goes through some very rugged terrain. Through that uh, terrain, there are many caves, and you can imagine what that provides for. This, this difficult journey, this difficult terrain, nobody wants to live here. It's um, very remote and filled with caves. This route was Israel's equivalent to our badlands. It was a haunt for bad people and for robbers. It included the Pass of Adumim, which means the Pass of Blood. It was named that because of the many people who suffered there on this route. It's, it has an intriguing story. I, I can't go into much of it, but into the 19th century, you had to pay the sheiks to get through there uh, alive. It, it's that, that long, it's been a difficult journey. And even into the 20th century, it's been a place where there's been uh, people who from time to time come through there and hijack cars along the way. So this is one notorious route. And everybody here would have understood that as Jesus speaks of that route. Barclay calls it the happy hunting ground of brigands. It was a place for robbers. It was a place to get uh, mugged. And that is, in, in fact, what happens here in verses 31 and 32. We have the response to this man who is mugged. And that response comes, first of all, from a priest. This is a Levite of the Aaronic clan. And he is ministering at the, te- at the temple in uh, Jerusalem, or that would be what his job was, and he is working his way down through this difficult terrain, and he comes upon this man who is there suffering, obviously, being, from being attacked by robbers. He's stripped of everything that he has and is left to die, but the man passes on the other side. A Levite comes along. Uh, he, his uh, duties also have to do with the sacrifice at the temple, but in a lesser way, he is involved in the, in the service of God, but he's a little bit outside of the, of the main uh, group of leaders, of religious leaders in Israel. He comes along and, again, passes on the other side. Now, if we tell the story of the three little pigs, we kind of help ourselves with the title, but we, we just expect three pigs. And there's a lot of stories like that, and in Israel there were many stories told this very way. Everybody's expecting three people. It's a parable. And they know, yes, the religious elite, we're all pretty much upset with them too. We don't like them. And Jesus never had any problem exposing the religious elite. Ah, Levite, he's a little bit, he's not quite so much at the center of it all. And But yeah, he's a bad guy too, we knew that. Okay, and they're all ready with bated breath for the good common Jew to come along and to help this man in his need. And Jesus scandalizes everybody when he mentions this good Samaritan who takes his own oil and his own wine to treat the wounds, who probably strips off some of his own clothing, perhaps his headband, to bind the man up. 
and who takes him and provides money for this man to live between two to three and a half weeks in an inn and to be cared for there until he can recover from his wounds. And if it takes longer, he'll be back to give more money. This good what? This good Samaritan. You think of the most despised, despicable person in this culture that you can think of. And that doesn't even begin to compare with how Jews thought about Samaritans. There was really bad blood between them. Jesus purposefully uses this evil man from a Jewish perspective to be the hero of the story, and he's doing something with this. This good Samaritan cares for the man. And Jesus then asks this pointed question, verse 36, Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hand of robbers? Now, what, wait a minute here. We started out with, how do you inherit eternal life? And then we went to, who is your neighbor? Jesus is doing something here. He's not really answering the guy's question straight up. He's answering it. But he's doing something much more. Who was a neighbor? So Jesus subtly shifts the focus away from who qualifies as a neighbor and places the emphasis on who loves as a neighbor. He brings the lawyer to consider exactly what the lawyer was trying to avoid. As Edersheim puts it, the question now is not who is my neighbor, but whose neighbor am I? Do I love others with all my heart? Bach puts it, do not worry about who is the neighbor, just be one, as he summarizes Christ's words. So the point is, do you love others as you love yourself? Are you one who is oriented toward others, whoever they be? That's the question. Who was the neighbor to him? Verse 37, the lawyer once again is put in a tough spot. There's only one answer. The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. You notice he cannot even bring himself to say the Samaritan. That guy that had mercy on him. And how I wish you to change the name to something else. But he was the one who was the neighbor. What must I do to inherit eternal life? The lawyer gives answer and Jesus simply holds him to that answer. Verse 37 at the end, Jesus told him, go and do likewise. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Go and do likewise. Samaritan can do it. Can you? Will you? Go and do likewise. Let's not make the mistake that this lawyer made. I think what we need to realize through all of this discussion is that we need God. We are naturally self-oriented. We are not naturally others-oriented. We energetically and thoughtfully labor day after day to assure that we have taken care of our own needs and served our own interests, whatever they be, even religious ones. It takes supernatural power to consistently rank your interests below the interests of others. Loving your neighbor as you love yourself will not happen unless you walk in dependence upon the power of God. The power of God to help you see past yourself 
to motivate you to act in the interest of others and to be willing to pay the price of love. That is certainly the next thing that we see here in this account. It costs to love others. It means taking our time and our resources and abilities and giving them away for the good of others. Is this a price that we're willing to pay? We need to be cautious because the implications are eternal. Now, please endure a while longer here, for we have been looking at the Galilean ministry of Jesus. The two and a half years is now over. And for these past six, for these next six months, the last of Christ's life, he will be concentrating on the region of Judea. Remember 951. In 951, the time approached for him to be taken up to Jerusalem, and Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. Taken up to heaven, rather, and he resolutely set out for Jerusalem. So Jesus is in, now in the Judean region. He will go back and forth, but he is primarily there. We, putting the text together, it would appear that Jesus will actually visit Jerusalem three times during these last six months. The first will be for the festival of tabernacles or booths, or tents, we might even say. The second will be for the festival of dedication, and the third will be for the festival of Passover where Christ will be crucified. Now Luke doesn't really want us to think too much about that, and, and because he's just looking at this whole last six months as a general journey to Jerusalem. But there will be much going back and forth throughout Judea. But we do know as we put this together with the Gospel of John, we believe that this takes place at this festival of booths. Edersheim goes so far as to suggest that the account that's before us here takes place in one of those booths in the courtyard of Lazarus' home. We don't know that for sure. It would be very interesting to, to uh, know that. It really doesn't make any difference, but that is where Christ is. We want to look back on that map there just because it serves a, a second purpose here. And that is... Uh, this is where the, we know the home of Mary and Martha is located, uh, just two miles from Jerusalem on the other side of the Mount of Olives, and that's where this account will take place. So Jesus is very close to Jerusalem here, but what Luke doesn't ever tell us is that he visits Jerusalem three times. This is his first visit to Jerusalem at the time of the festival of booths or tabernacles when the Israelites would live outside in these branch-made tents and uh, enjoy family time and the beauty of the fall season and talking together about the things of God and, and about family issues as they uh, joined in this time of celebration and uh, holiday as a, as a nation. I say all that just to get us into this next account, but I, I think that it's important that we consider this account here for, a couple of, for, for one primary reason. I can't prove that this is what Luke is doing, but it is possible for us to consider what has taken place in verses 25 through 37 and to really head off in the wrong direction. The idea being that we storm out of the gate, so to speak, and we go after loving others with all of our heart, to love them with, with, as we love ourselves. We go off to serve and we see what God is saying, and we look at our self-centeredness, and we're appalled by it, and we say, how can I be others-oriented, and how can I serve others? There's a qualifying side to this whole thing in the next account. And perhaps that is why Luke places it here. The danger of misapplication is large as we look at the Good Samaritan, that all we would ever be is a Good Samaritan. 
The narrative before us here looks at the other half of verse 27. Love the Lord your God with all your heart. Jesus focused primarily on love your neighbor as yourself in the parable. But now we are going to look at the other half of the lawyer's proper answer in verse 27 as we come to verse 38. Verse 38 reads, And Jesus and his disciples were on their way. He came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet, listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. If we put this at the time of booze, we might add the possibility that she's having extra problem taking care of this hosting, hostess responsibility because there's, she's got to run things out to the booth in the center courtyard. We don't know all of what the situation is that's distracting her, but she is very much pulled by these preparations. The word in verse 40 translated here, distracted, means to be pulled apart. She wants to be with Jesus and to hear his teaching, but there's all this food to serve. There's all these people here. We are hosting a famous rabbi after all. Things have to be right. And oh, she's scurrying around, she's doing her job, getting it all done while Mary is listening at Jesus' feet. Now that is a profound statement, almost as shocking as Good Samaritan. The rabbis of Jesus' day permitted women to learn the law, but never from their mouth. You heard the old prayer, God, thank you that I wasn't born a Gentile or a woman or a dog. That was the thought of many of the rabbis of Jesus' day. That was not Jesus' thought. And he invites this woman to sit with him and to hear at his feet, to listen to his teaching. It's a shocking thought in and of itself that in that culture and that time. But of course there's a problem that develops between Martha and Mary. As we read in the second part of verse 40, she that is, Martha came to him, Jesus, and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister was, has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. You've got to like Martha. I mean, you've got to like her, because if you don't, you'd get really angry with her, and Jesus doesn't treat her that way, but she, it, she had to be pretty bold. This is not something you say to a Jewish rabbi. But she's very frustrated. She's mad at Mary. But did you notice who else she's mad at? Jesus. I can't believe you're letting her do this. So Jesus, I've got the whole thing figured out. If you will just become a little more sensitive to me, and if you'll get on my sister's case, who's being so irresponsible, we can get this whole thing to work out. Will you please talk to her and rebuke her for her laziness? With grace dripping from his lips. Jesus says, verse 41, Martha, Martha. That double use of her name is a way of calming and saying, I'm with you here, but you need to think about something. Martha, Martha. You are worried and upset about many things, but only one thing is needed. Or as the margin reads, but a few things are needed or only one. It's a very difficult textual problem to solve and it clouds the meaning of the passage. In fact, it doesn't make it easy no matter what text you use because it's a difficult statement. Beyond this, we couple to it the fact that Jesus doesn't ever define what is better. 
And so because of that, it's a little tough to know exactly what he is saying, but the general point is crystal clear. One thing is needed. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. It would seem then that what is better is that Mary has chosen to listen to the Word of God, to feed at Jesus' feet, rather than to be distracted with this temporal issue of serving. Was Martha doing wrong? Did Jesus rebuke her and say, would you put your things down and get over here? What you're doing is wicked. You should be hearing the word of God. He doesn't. I think, in fact, that what she is doing is very noble. She is thinking about others. Okay, it's not perfect love because she's got her eye constantly looking over at what everybody else is doing and how it's affecting her. But she is serving other people. She's putting down her interest to listen to Christ, and she's doing the work that needs to be done. Jesus doesn't rebuke her necessarily for what she's doing. In fact, you remember Jesus, the picture that must come to mind, I think, here, is of Jesus dressed like a slave and washing his disciples' feet. It's not wrong to serve. In fact, he says there in John chapter 13 that if we follow Jesus, we'll do the same thing. It's not wrong to serve Martha. But Mary has chosen in this case something better than service to others. And that is to hear the word of God. How foolish it would be, Martha, for loving acts of service to others to keep us from feeding on God's truth. Mary was honoring Jesus by serving him, but... Martha, rather, was honoring Jesus by serving him, but Mary's homage was actually greater. She was so taken with God's words that she forgot her responsibilities in this moment. Now, there's grave danger of misapplication here. Let me give just a few moments of discussion on that. This is not a commendation of laziness. Young father, young wife, three children, preschool children, all in diapers, let's say. Takes this concept and goes home and says, I've decided what I'm going to do. Every day when I get home from work, I'm going to spend two hours reading the Bible as soon as I get home from work. I've chosen the better thing than serving my poor wife as she's trying to keep three kids going and get supper together. And every day he comes home after work and for two hours he reads the Bible. His wife is steaming through the whole thing week after week, wondering how can he do this. She gets very upset, as would, of course, be very natural, trying to balance all of these things. And one night he comes out after his two hours with God. Oh, how wonderful it is to know Jesus. How wonderful it is to be with Jesus for two hours in the Bible. And she's muttering under her breath, you're going to be with Jesus sooner than you know if you don't get something changed here. That's wrong. That's not the right application. There's a time to serve. And that's what Jesus, I think, is saying. There's a time to serve. When he comes to his disciples' feet and they're all dirty at the Last Supper, it doesn't matter what's going on in Jesus' life. That's a moment of desperate need for Christ. But he bends down and he washes feet because it needed to be done. But there is a time also 
when it's time to spend alone with God, to hear His teaching. Some have taken this passage to be commending monasticism, particularly in the patristic church. The idea was that this was an allegory, and Jesus was saying the active life is to be set aside for the contemplative life. If you know what's really good for you, you'll find a monastery, you'll close yourself up there, and you'll just think about God. This isn't an allegory. This is Jesus counseling a woman and helping her to see that there's something deeper. I think it's a side issue, but I do think we could certainly draw as proper conclusion that we should not become frustrated with those who are able to hear God's word because of our service. Many applications, even in our own family here as a church, aren't there? No, it might be very easy to become quite frustrated as you're watching children in the nursery and thinking, I'd rather be out there in the service hearing God's word. Take heart if you're allowing others to hear God's word. There might be vacation Bible school workers or Sunday school workers or children's church workers who at times find themselves at a place where they can't hear the word they'd like to hear. Take heart. You're doing a good thing to allow others to do it. We shouldn't be looking as Martha did over our shoulder and begrudging others the opportunity. If your service is permitting someone else to hear the word of God, it's good service. I think that's a side application, and I think an appropriate application. But it's certainly not the heart of it. At the heart of it is this. Do you so love God that He is the driving force in your life and not self? Do you want to hear His Word? Do you want to spend time with Him? Do you long to sit at Jesus' feet? Or is your life just plain too busy, too harried, too self-focused to listen to what God has to say. Lazy Pascal said this amazing line, the miseries of men come from not being able to sit alone in a quiet room. There is a heap of wisdom in that simple sentence, and you have to think about it for a while. The miseries of men come, by that he means from people, the miseries of humanity come from not being able to sit alone in a quiet room. There's great truth to that. Can you sit alone in a quiet room with God and profit? If you are incapable of taking the word of God and reading his truth and drawing life and force and strength from it, if you're incapable of doing that, something is desperately wrong. We all do not read God's Word as we should. We don't meditate and contemplate it as we should. We don't know the teaching of Christ as we ought. But if the reason for that is because you really don't care to, you need to ask the question today, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And what you must do is take in the Word of God. What you must do, in fact, is love the Word of God. What you must do, in fact, is to love God with all your heart. And if you come then to that place and say, I don't want to do that, or I can't do that, you're getting closer. We can't. But we need to draw strength from our, 
from the presence of God in our life? What is the driving purpose of your life? What is the orientation that motivates you to do what you do, really? Here's the good news. Jesus Christ came to liberate us from the dungeon of self-orientation. He came to set us free. By His grace and in accordance with His power, we don't have to limit our days with the dictates of self-interest. We can, by His grace, be liberated to love others as we love ourselves and to love God with all of our heart. It is to just such a life, in fact, that Jesus calls us. And there is so much at stake here. One who spent much time with Jesus and benefited from his ministry of foot washing, the Apostle John put it this way in his letter, his first epistle, Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God, but anyone who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. Do you possess eternal life? Do you love God with all of your heart? Do you love your neighbor as you love yourself? If you do not know Christ as your Savior, let me tell you that it's not going to happen. You're not going to be able to love God with all your heart and your neighbor as yourself in your own strength. It's not a matter of getting your life together and fixing everything up and being commendable to God whom you then receive, and then receive Christ as your Savior. That is not the way it works. It works rather as a parable, another parable that Jesus told of a publican, a wicked sinner in Jewish eyes, who came before God and pounded his breast in agony, saying, I am unworthy of God. If you come to that place, there is hope, and there is promise, and there is good news. Jesus Christ will receive you in your sin, and will wash you clean, and give you a heart that will be able to learn to love God and love others. For those of us who know Christ as Savior, this calls us to remember how desperately dependent we are on the power of the Spirit in our lives. Because we don't think like this by nature. Of others first. And God supreme above all. My uh, 1987 car has not been retrofitted with a global positioning system just yet. But we're just trying to keep tires on it. So I don't know anything about them, but I've seen them. The little things that show you around seen them, kind of guide you to tell you where to go. You know, that global positioning system that we're born with has on the screen self-interest, and it will guide you there every time without fail. What we need is a new GPS. We need to be retrofitted with a system that guides us to think of God first and others next and ourselves last. By His grace, He'll be doing that in our church and in your life and mine. 
by his grace. Let's rejoice in him. Father, we love you so incompletely and imperfectly. But we thank you for your promise that you will empower us to do what you call us to do and that by the presence of the Spirit of God we can produce the fruit of righteousness. Help us to that end to fulfill the law of Christ by loving others as we love ourselves. God, may we have a heart and a passion and a love for you, and may that be the system that drives us at our very soul. Draw us to yourself and any who know you not as Savior to saving faith, I pray in the name of Christ. Just while you're seated...